All right. Hear now the word of our God from 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning seeking to be conformed to the image of your Son. We know that all scripture has been breathed out by you and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So we ask that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, let's all just be honest and ask the question that I know we're all thinking. What on earth is going on in this text? This particular sermon uh, I actually wrote because I was assigned this text in a preaching class. This is not the text that I would just pick if I, if I could choose from any that I wanted. Now in that class, before we actually delivered our sermons... Uh, we were all assigned today to read our text out loud in class. And as it so happened, I read this text the morning that my niece was born. I remember that we had known that Laura's sister Lisa had gone into the hospital to have the baby, so we figured we'd get the news soon. And I was teaching English early that morning when Laura got the call. I could hear Lisa's husband David say, Meet Savannah Grace Council. And then I heard the one noise in all the world that should make everyone's heart just melt when they hear it. I heard that little newborn baby start to cry. Now, I remember actually having to put forth quite a bit of effort to control my own emotions when I, when I heard that. And you, you parents, 
know this better than I do. The joy that accompanies the birth of a child into this world must be absolutely incomparable for a parent. A friend of mine in Canada told us that he fully expected to write five songs at the birth of his oldest son, and knowing this particular guy, I believe him. I can only imagine that kind of joy. The joy of knowing that your whole life will never be the same from that moment on because there's now someone in the world you love more than you ever thought possible. And that's where the text begins today. David and his new wife Bathsheba had just welcomed their first child into this world. Now, to be sure, the circumstances surrounding how the two of them had come together were less than ideal. They were both already married. They had an affair. But this child had the potential to heal all those wounds. It had the potential to heal the wounds of the affair that ended Bathsheba's marriage that cost her husband his life and brought shame upon the kingdom of Israel. This child could be the one good thing that came out of all that evil. But God, that's right, God had decreed that it would not be so. The prophet Nathan had been absolutely clear. The child would die as a consequence of his father's sin. Again, try, try to imagine being David and Bathsheba. They loved their son as much as any mother and father have ever loved their children. The joy they experienced at his birth was as much as any parents have ever had. But it was not to last. The child immediately became ill. And though David pleaded with God on behalf of his son, God's word was final. He would die. So now let me ask you again, what, what do we do with that? What do we do with a text like this? Most of us read the Old Testament like this. We look for good guys whose behavior we try to imitate and bad guys whose behavior we try to avoid. And that works for some texts. For instance, if you read the story of Cain and Abel, you should absolutely try to be like Abel and not like Cain. If you read the story of Noah, his faith in God during a time of judgment should certainly be seen as an example for all of us, even though we may not live in a time exactly like his. But in, in this story, there aren't any good guys. Not really. David had sinned greatly bringing the whole thing about. His servants were just trying to keep the king happy and look out for his welfare and the welfare of the, the country at large. The child certainly didn't do anything that, uh, that we could emulate. So what do we do? How, how do we read this text? First, let me say what we should not do. We should not assume that anyone who goes through something like this is automatically being punished by God the same way David was. There's an account in the Gospel of John where Jesus' disciples encounter a man who had been born blind. And they ask Jesus, they say, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Christ's answer is that the man's blindness is not a result of his sin or his parents' sin. We don't know the purposes of God. 
We should not try to assign judgment to those who are going through difficult times. And if anyone listening right now has gone through anything like this, let me tell you right now, God loves you. God is with you in your suffering. And we should never assume to know the mind of God. Rather, we should remember that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And we should trust him even if we don't understand. The way I think we should view this text is to see how Christ is pictured in it. For remember, Christ is the true son of David. Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises made to David of a son who would sit on his throne forever. So as we look at this text, we can see Christ in three ways. David's son suffered for a sin he did not commit. David's son is the true bringer of peace. And David's son is the beloved of God. So first, David's son suffered for a sin he did not commit. Remember that David was concerned with no one but himself during the whole affair with Bathsheba. Now, when I was in high school, I, and I'm somewhat ashamed to admit this, I had a problem with actually going to class. Um, I simply didn't handle the freedom of having my own car very well. Uh, it would go the same way pretty much every day. I would arrive at school a few minutes early, and I would go to the band room, because that's where all of my friends hung out. And after my friends and I had wasted as much time as we could and still get to class on time, there was a decision we had to make. First, I could go to class and listen and learn and one day graduate, or I could get in my car or a friend's car and leave to get breakfast and come back around lunch. That way I could go to the classes I actually liked, which at that time were band and music theory. Now most mornings I had no difficulty with that decision at all. Breakfast at McDonald's won every time. But the consequences of that was that I found myself failing Spanish. So around early October, I had a change of heart. I now wanted to go to class. I now wanted to pass and graduate. Well, the teacher had apparently gone through that before. And she stood up in front of the whole class one morning and told us, she said, every year I have seniors in high school come to me and say, you have to help me pass this class. If you don't, I won't graduate. And then she looked at us and said, not my problem. Throughout the entire affair with Bathsheba, it's like you can hear David say that over and over again through his actions. It's time to take the army to war? Not my problem. That beautiful woman is the daughter of one of my army's officers and the wife of another. That's not my problem. Then she sends word to him. She says, King David, I, I did what you asked. I committed adultery with you. And now I'm pregnant and my husband is not the father. What am I supposed to do now? Now here David responds a little bit differently because he decides to help her cover up the adultery because he would be in trouble for that too. But the child? Not my problem. He is perfectly happy to allow some other guy to raise his son. 
Uriah, being an honorable man and a good soldier, unwittingly won't cooperate with David's cover-up. Not my problem, David says, and he actually stoops to conspiracy to commit murder in order to protect himself from the consequences of his sin. He consistently only cares about himself. Now, contrast that with Christ, the true son of David. Christ left his place at the Father's right hand in order to walk here with us. Christ did not look to his own interests, but he always looked to the interests of others. He was willing to lay down his very life for those who hated him. So, brothers and sisters, let us follow the example of Christ, not David. But also look at the fact that David had been promised a son. In a, a couple chapters before this, in 2 Samuel, David had been promised a son who would not only reign over Israel forever, but God himself would be a father to him. Yet in this instance, David was willing to simply cast off his child with no fatherly regard whatsoever. And it's easy to forget that aspect of the account because, you know, adultery and murder, those things really jump out at you. But don't forget that David was willing to simply abandon his own child. I remember one year when I was in high school, my history teacher was bemoaning the lack of morality as best she could see it, among the candidates for president at that time. But there was one man who was running that did receive her praise. She said, he's been married to the same woman for many years. He's good to his family. She said, I, I disagree with his, his policies, but at least I can see some good moral character in him. A couple years later, however, that facade fell down. That particular man had not only had an affair, but when the woman became pregnant, he actually attempted to deny paternity, and she had to take him to court in order to get him to pay child support. I'll never forget hearing a late-night comedian of all people publicly condemning his behavior in that matter. We all know that it's wrong for a father to abandon his children. Fathers have a duty to their families. It's their highest duty. Yet David was willing to simply be derelict in his duty. Now the point here is, is this. David's son didn't commit any of those sins. In these matters, he was completely innocent. Yet he suffered the consequences for the sins of another. In this way, he points us to Christ, who suffered willingly for sins he did not commit. There was no iniquity found in him. It was, it was we who, like sheep, were led astray. Yet Christ took our iniquity on himself, and by his stripes we have been healed. Now, notice in verse 16, it said, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The verb there where it says David sought God, that verb in the Hebrew is a verb that the, the form of it involves an intensification of the action. In other, in other words, David didn't just seek God. 
he didn't just go in and present his requests on behalf of his child. He went in and he earnestly sought God and he pleaded with everything he had to spare his son. Now contrast that with David's earlier attitude of indifference. One of the major themes of the book of Samuel is the contrast between David and the king who came right before him, King Saul. Both of these men came from humble beginnings. Both were anointed by the prophet Samuel as God's choice to lead the people of Israel as king. Both had great success early in their reigns. Both had serious moral failings. But only one of them repented. When Saul was confronted with his sin by the prophet Samuel, he seems to try to give the impression that he is repentant, uh, but he really just wants to avoid the consequences of his sin. He said to Samuel, he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord, your God. David, on the other hand, truly repents. He acknowledges his sin before God, writing some of the most beloved psalms in order to express his sorrow over his sin. He opens Psalm 51 with these words. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David is not concerned with his own status or privilege. He just desperately wants to be cleansed of his sin, of that which is abhorrent, abhorrent to his God. Now, brothers and sisters, don't miss the way in which David is an example for us to follow. He's not an exemplary figure in every way. We shouldn't imitate David in every way. Only Christ can show us the true way of the blessed man of Psalm 1. Right? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Only Christ can show us that. However, David's repentance is a picture of true repentance, true sorrow over sin. David's repentance shows us how we might be the blessed man of Psalm 32, which states, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Yet, even with true repentance, David had to watch his son as he suffered and died. God the Father had all the fatherly caring for Christ that David finally has for his son at this point in the story. The Father has that name because he is everything that a father should be. Now, this is a, a very delicate theological statement to make, so I want to be very careful. I am not saying that the Father, for one moment, did not will for the Son to suffer and die for the sin of the world. However, we should also remember that the Father loves the Son. He loves the Son with all of the perfect love that a father should have for his son. Yet for your sake, it was also his will to crush him so that in his death, you might have life.
And there lies the real difference between David's son in this passage and Christ. Look at verse 21. It says, Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David's son in this text died to live no more. That's why David stops fasting and praying because his son dies and he says it's over. There's nothing else I can do. He's dead. He's never coming back. The dead don't rise. But David's true son, who died for you, now lives and he lives to die no more. That's what he says in the book of Revelation when the apostle John meets him. He says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. The apostle Paul calls him the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep because in that he lives, you have eternal life. Death, though it will come for you, will not reign over you, for you will rise as Christ has risen. He is the head of his body, the church, and where the head goes, the body will follow. As he has risen from the dead, so shall we. And that is where Christ surpasses anything we could find in this text. So brothers and sisters, don't ever forget, in Christ you have life eternal. Now, the second way Christ is pictured in this passage. David's son is the true bringer of peace. Look in verse 24. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now, the name Solomon in the Hebrew is pronounced Shalomo. And you can hear a very strong similarity between Shalomo and Shalom, meaning peace. So it seems to, to be related there. And David seems to have had peace on his mind a lot when he was naming his children. He, he names another one of his sons, Avi Shalom. He, he literally named his son father of Peace. Now, of course, that son who we call Absalom uh, would fall far short of living up to that name. But it gives us an idea of what David wanted for the next generation. He had been a man of war. In, in fact, that had prevented him from being able to build a house for God. He had gone to the prophet and asked to build a house for God, and God had said, No, you're a man of war, a man of bloodshed. You can't build me a house. But he knew that God would be faithful in his promise to David's offspring. And there would be one, one day, who would bring true peace 
to Israel. Solomon brings hope to this passage. Those reading it for the first time would have known Solomon to be a great king. And as you read the history of Israel, there are several things about Solomon's reign that make it unique. He built the temple. He had greater riches than any other king in Israel's history. But also, there are no major battles recounted, certainly not on the level of those fought by David, and further, not on the level of those fought by other great kings in Judah's history, such as Hezekiah, who we talked about a few weeks ago. Solomon reigned for decades in peace and prosperity. But Solomon was not the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant with David. He fell badly short. In fact, his conduct resulted in the division of the kingdom of Israel, and that division never healed. He was only a small taste of the fulfillment of God's promise. No, Christ is the true Prince of Peace, the true Son of David. He is the one of whom Isaiah spoke, saying, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Brothers and sisters, Christ has come in humility, but he will come again in power. He will come to reign on the throne of his father, David. He now waits for such a time when his enemies will be put under his feet. Yet, even now, he has brought us peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, you listening to me right now, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, if you are in Christ, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. The third way Christ is pictured in this text. David's son is the beloved of God. David's son is the assurance that God's covenant will stand in spite of human sin. Notice that in this text, the child of David and Bathsheba dies, and then Solomon is born in the next verse. But Solomon was not the next son to be born to David and Bathsheba. 
First Chronicles lists four sons of David and Bathsheba, Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Solomon was the fourth son of David and Bathsheba. But the writer inserts the birth of Solomon into the story at this point in order to ensure us that God's covenant with David was not made void by his failure in sin. His promise stands in spite of David's sin. And Solomon has a very interesting event tied to his birth. The text states twice that God loved him. It first states it explicitly, where it says he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. But then he's given the name Jedidiah. And Jedidiah actually means beloved of the Lord. Now, years ago, I had a pastor who had an axiom for biblical interpretation, and it went like this. If it's repeated, it's important. Now, twice in a few words, this is repeated. So that principle of if it's repeated, it's important gets heightened when it's repeated that close together. It's as though the writer is telling us, hey, hey, God God loved him. God really loved him. This, this, this is the son that God loved. God really, really loved this son. Now think about David's greater son. The one of whom it was said from heaven, this is my beloved son. The gospel writers, interestingly enough, record hearing this voice from heaven twice. Once at Christ's baptism, and again at the transfiguration. It's as though they say to us, hey, God loves him. God really loves him. This is the son that God loves. God really loves this son. And guess what? David's son loves you. He intercedes for you, and he seeks your good. So, beloved in the Lord, let me ask you this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When your loved ones are sick and dying, nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. When others mistreat you and only care about themselves, and you look up to God and say, God, what is happening? I'm like a sheep to be slaughtered. Nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. When death comes for you the way it comes for all of us, nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. Because the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves you. So trust in Christ in all circumstances. 
Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ loves us. And with the Apostle John, we are amazed and, and cry out, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And yet your word tells us, and so we are. Help us to live in that reality, trusting your word and finding hope in the love of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.